0: If you guys want to go ahead and open your Bibles back up to John chapter 1, um, we'll start in the reading that we had this morning. I want to say uh, at the start that this is uh, a re-presentation of a lesson I heard from another brother, Jimmy Petruce, um last year. He works in Seychelles. And... Uh, Had a lot of contact with Robert Smith um, when he was alive, and uh, he he, Jimmy preached this lesson at Embry Hills I think last November, and it was one that stuck with me. It's one of those lessons that you kind of chew on and mull over, and um, when you see your failings, those lessons kind of stick with you a long time. So I saw some real shortcomings in myself, and I just thought this would be a good lesson to present because it's something I've been thinking about a lot. And um, I don't know that we've had one quite like it here. So if you don't like the lesson, don't blame Jimmy. It's, it's my fault. I didn't do a good job expressing it. Um, but it is from God's Word, really. It didn't originate with Him. The, the title of the lesson is just simply Grace and Truth. And that comes from a couple verses in the passage we read in, in John chapter 1, verse 14 and verse 17. Um, The reason I wanted James to read the whole first 17 verses, even though I'm only speaking about grace and truth, there's a lot said in there about Jesus. Um, If you you look in that passage, you know, obviously there's the very beginning. It says, in the beginning was the Word, right? That's Jesus. He's the Word. The Word was with God, so he wasn't like beneath God. He wasn't an angel. He was with God. And in fact, he was God. Like, he's deity. The Word is deity. and then you come down, and he talks about John a little bit in verse 6. He came to testify about the light. He was not the light. Verse 9, right, Jesus again. This There was the true light, right, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Um, so there are the, all of these things that are said about Jesus, and Jesus isn't named yet, right? But then you get down to verse 14, the word became flesh, right? And now we start to understand Okay, this this isn't just a being in heaven that stayed in heaven. This is this is Jesus, right? The only God that became flesh was Jesus. Uh, the Holy Spirit didn't do that. Jesus did that. Jesus was born. Um, so we, we we read these things, but then at the end of verse fourteen, right? We have just kind of it's something I just pass over constantly, right? That he's full of grace and truth. And in verse 17, we have this restatement. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ, or were shown, or came forth. They they it's almost like they came into being by Jesus. Um, And I wanted to to key on that because we and those around us. Um, I'll just make a generalization for everyone. We struggle being full of both. We tend to be full of one or the other. Um, I know people in my life who are full of grace and very little truth. Um, They're might be pleasant to be around socially um, but when it comes to stating what's true and what's false they're not gonna play any role in that and then there are people who are full of truth and they're not pleasant to be around (laughs) because they have no grace at all Uh, but they will tell you what is right and what is wrong you will know at least where they stand on it right but if they're full of the truth you'll know the truth they just they won't have the grace we're told twice in, in these verses in the, in the course of you know, four verses 14 to 17 Jesus was full of grace and truth and in fact we know grace and truth through him that's how it's even expressed like we can't go somewhere else and say well Jesus imitated this and that's how he had grace no he didn't imitate anything he just expressed himself and that's how we knew grace. Well, Jesus went over here and found truth and brought truth to us. No, that's not what it says either. Jesus expressed himself, who he was, and therefore we saw truth and we knew truth. That's the idea carried in verse 17. Verse 14 just says he was full of it, right? How can you be full of two things? It sounds like two fulls, right? Well, he was completely gracious and he was completely truthful, right? Both. Both. He was full of both. So I want to look at two, just two examples. They're vastly contrasting examples of how Jesus exemplified both of these things. And they're in John. John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. So let's first look at John 3, Nicodemus. I'm just going to read the first nine verses of chapter 3. There's much more to the interaction than just this, but the first nine verses will will give us what we need um, to get started, and then we'll look toward the end of the conversation. So John 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And then Jesus goes into what I would consider a challenging description of spiritual life, right? Or um, what being born again is and what it entails and not all the details, but he explains it to him. But what I want to focus on is just this first exchange here in the beginning. Did you notice when Nicodemus came to Jesus? It was at night, right? That's pointed out a lot. Um, But it seems like he's afraid of something. I mean, he's a prominent, powerful person in Jerusalem. He could pretty much do anything he wanted to do without fear. He's a ruler of the Jews and a Pharisee. And yet, he cannot openly in the sun in the day come to Jesus and speak with him as he wants to he's afraid of something and I, I think we know what he's afraid of he's afraid of embarrassment ridicule by the other Pharisees in fact we see later in John 7 when Nicodemus stands up in the council and says does the law condemn a man before we've had any evidence and they immediately say well who are you? are you from Galilee? Galilee? Like, are you, a, are you just with him? Are you a cousin? <laughs> right? That was just because he was defending, in his statement, defending the law with respect to, to Jesus. Imagine if he was caught keeping counsel with that man and coming and saying these things to him We know you have come from God. Well, Obviously, he can't do that openly and maintain the things he values in this life. That's what he's, So he's, he's fearful of that. That's the obvious thing, but what I never realized in all the times I read this is that Jesus made room for that fear. He didn't encourage him in that fear and say, oh, this is a healthy fear. This is good. It's good for you to be afraid of people didn't say that. But he also didn't take that fear and just beat him over the head with it. Say, you hypocrite. If you think I'm from God, why didn't you come in the day? He could have said that. He could have said, you respect these men more than you respect me. Why would you come to me and, and give me these compliments? Why don't you give me this compliment when you're standing in the Sanhedrin? He didn't say that either. He made room, that's the way I think about it anyway. I don't, I don't know how else to describe it, but it's sort of like he held back all of this judgment of this man and allowed him to bring his fear into his presence and stand there in fear because he was seeking Jesus. On some level, we talked about all these different levels of faith and what people understand and what they know, but if someone goes to Jesus, that's all the faith they need in that moment. He had all kinds of issues. He had all kinds of issues. Right? But Jesus made room for that fear and said, All right, bring your fear in. You can come in with your fear and talk to me. Right? Now, we understand Jesus didn't like treat him with kid gloves here. He threw some really heavy theological stuff on this man. He didn't even hear apparently the uh, compliment oh we know you're from God no one can do these things you're a teacher you're a great teacher and Jesus is just like all right, well let's get started here's the teaching you can't can't enter the kingdom of God without being born again chew on that right he didn't you know necessarily treat him with kid gloves but he did not take his weaknesses in in that moment the things that burdening Him and destroy Him with it. That's grace. That's what grace does. And I mean capital G grace, like Jesus embodying grace. When you come to Jesus and if He was just truth, we would all be cut down. We wouldn't even make it Within sight. Like, if you just run into truth, it's gonna be a bad day for you. Jesus, all truth and all grace, both, right, allowed this man to come close enough to the truth by offering this grace and saying, You can bring you can come in here with your fear, and I will talk to you because you're seeking me. That's what grace does. It makes room for weaknesses. Not to encourage people in them, but so that they can be overcome by his strength, by the truth that he's going to offer. So think about yourself. Have you ever had this fear, like you want to be close to Jesus and you know him, but if too many people knew like how much you wanted him? Then it'd be an issue. Like everybody respects people. And I'm not talking about the world, right? In the world. People sort of respect people who are religious. Oh, you're religious. Oh, that's, that's, that's nice. That means you're a good person and you think about others and all that stuff. And then you're like, well, I sort of define my life by Jesus, like everything. Like, I obey the law, I don't cheat on my taxes. You're know, like, you don't cheat on your taxes. I mean, this is, this is not religion, this is you and the government. The government's going to get every pound of flesh they can get. Why shouldn't you? That's not God sitting in the White House. Well, I know, but you know, God says government authorities from Him doesn't originate anywhere else, and we have to obey it. So I, I obey it. Then things start to get weird, right? Um, Why are you going to church on Christmas morning? Like, nobody's going to church on Christmas morning. People are staying with their family. There's 51 other Sundays in the year. You're gonna go every single Sunday? Well, I define my life by what we see the apostles approving of. And they approved of Christians meeting on the first day of the week. So like, that's, I'm, that's where I'm gonna be on the first day of the week. Might not be the only thing I do, but I'm gonna be there on the first day of the week, right? Things start to get weird. <laughs> I can vouch for this, right? Um, you sort of become the Jesus freak in either your family or in your circle of friends, um, and and not even that they they attack you for that. That's just who you are. You're the Jesus freak, like you know you you you've gone a little too far with the religion thing. The rest of us, we sort of moderate it. Right? It gets uncomfortable. That's what Nicodemus is facing in a, in a much more multiplied manner. Because it's going to affect his entire life. Who he is, the positions he can hold, where he can worship, where he can be, who, can, he can even, who will even talk to him in the future. So we, we feel it on a, on a smaller scale sometimes. But what do we do? Do we, do we just say, well, I can't go to Jesus and express this fear because it's, it's shameful. Like, why am I letting their fear affect my relationship with him? That's, I can't do that, so I can't talk to Jesus about this. I can't go to him. I've got to sort this out first. Nicodemus didn't do that. He didn't sort out his entire life and all the issues he had before he said, well, I've got to make sure I go to Jesus in the right way. He just said, I'm afraid of these people, and so I'm going to go at night. And Jesus let him come to him at night. Our fear should be addressed, but it shouldn't prevent us from going to him and saying, I'm afraid of these people and what they think of me. Help me with that. Show me how to overcome that. I know you are from God. At least go to him and say that. Right? In whatever fear or problem you have. Right? So flip it around. Do you do that with others? What Jesus did? Um... Do you make room for their weaknesses in order to show them truth? Or do you take their weaknesses and attack? If I see a weakness. I don't have that weakness. I'm going to take it, and I'm just going to bludgeon these people. They're not going to know what hit them, because I've got so much truth stored up that I'm just going to unleash truth. I mean, it feeds our ego. We feel good about it because then we're better than them, right? It feeds the flesh. It does feed the flesh. If you've ever engaged in it, and I guarantee you, I have. Right? I love to be right. I love it. My body, right? My flesh loves it. It feeds the, that flesh. It feeds that pride. It feeds that ego. Okay. Can you imagine what Jesus could have done to this man if he had had that attitude? Could have destroyed him. Can you imagine what Jesus could do to you if he had that attitude right now toward you? If he wanted to take every one of your weaknesses and beat you about the head and shoulders with it, you wouldn't survive that. And I don't mean physically, I mean spiritually, you wouldn't survive, you would crumble. It'd break you. You got weaknesses you don't even know you have. I don't even want to know what my weaknesses all are at one time. I don't want to even be presented with it, much less attacked with it. So do we make room for people who are weak who come to us and say, I want to know Jesus because he's from God? And do we say, Oh great. Okay, well let's let's find out who he is. Or do we say, No. You got this and you got this and you got this and you got this. You can't come to Jesus. Jesus didn't do that. There's, that's, not, that's not grace. Jesus showed grace here. Later in the chapter, in John 3, look in verse 19. He does not hold truth back from Nicodemus. John 3 beginning in verse 19 this is the judgment this is Jesus talking now right this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light how do you think you think Nicodemus heard that I guarantee you he heard that here I am in darkness coming to Jesus right? love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light. For fear, you think Nicodemus heard that? For fear that his deeds will be exposed. I don't want this being exposed, even though this is a good deed. Like he, want, he wants that hidden. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. It's at the very end of the conversation. Jesus did not lead with John 3, verse 19. You love darkness more than light. But he told him that. This is the judgment, that the light is here, and men love darkness more. Right? He presented the truth to Nicodemus, but he did not lead with the harsh truth. He let him come in first and bring his fear with him. Uh, You know, as I said earlier, if the old Richard was in Jesus' position with someone coming like that, like, he would have heard things like, you know, you creep around at night because you're ashamed of me. Well, I'm ashamed of you, you hypocrite. Get out of here. Old Richard would have said that. You're ashamed of me because you come at night? I'm ashamed of you. I don't want to hear it. Jesus didn't do that. The old Richard wouldn't have seen this, this man as a soul that needs help out of sin. Would have just seen him as somebody who's messed up. He needs to get his life sorted out before he comes to Jesus. That's not Jesus. I'm glad Jesus is not like that with me. And I, that's not cliche. I mean, I'm, I'm telling you sincerely, I am glad Jesus is not like that with me. We are responsible as Christians, right? the body of Christ, we are responsible for presenting Jesus to the world in all His glory, with both grace and truth. We are responsible for that. Let's look at the next example. John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. Again, I'm I'm not going to read the entire account, but I'm going to read the part that I think we we can focus on. Um, for this, this, this point. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Okay, Jesus. Uh, so to set it up, Jesus is at this well. He's been traveling, and the, the disciples have gone into town to get some food. So Jesus is sitting at this well. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew... Ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him will become in him a well of water, springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, or Lord, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Okay, that's as far as we're going to read. Totally different scenario from John 3, right? I mean, if you think about all the details, okay, the sixth hour of the day we're told uh, earlier in the chapter, right? So it's the middle of the day, or at least there's, there's definitely light out, right? Um, it's a Samaritan woman instead of a Jewish ruler. I mean, you don't get different ends of the spectrum than Samaritan woman and Jewish ruler, socially, right? There's just not an end of this. I mean, that's it. Jesus initiates this conversation. She's not coming to him because she knows who he is. She doesn't have any idea who this man is. Right? She's coming to the well to get water. He says, right, give me a drink. I mean, just about everything that could be different about the two accounts is different. Um, there's probably more, but that's, that's enough. Right? Jesus is still full of grace and truth. It is not circumstantial. Totally different approach by Jesus. But he's still full of grace and truth. It's not just with men. It's not just with Jews. It's not just with people who are afraid. This woman's not afraid of him. She's kind of shocked. Hey, you're a Jew. Like, What are you doing? You're not supposed to talk to me. What's going on? He's still full of grace and truth. And I would submit to you that the grace here is both easy to see and a little more difficult to see. The easy part is that Jesus just breaks down all these walls. We see the grace there because we're sensitive and aware of social norms and social barriers. Oh, you can't talk to this person. You can't be with this person, right? South Africa has gone through that back in the '90s. They broke down the apartheid, and in this country, all you know, all the civil rights movement just just you know, forty or fifty years ago, right? We're aware of these culture norms that put barriers between people. So we see that when Jesus breaks that down, we see that grace. It's obvious. Jesus is treating a human like a human. That's grace. Okay, that's that's what I think is the easier grace. Um. So, Grace establishes relationships with other human beings on the basis of being a human being. He says, I'm thirsty, essentially, right, give me a drink of water, you're here to get water, I'm like you, I need water, it's really simple, right? But it's powerful to say, hey, I'm thirsty, like, can you help me? You are a peer at that point, you're the same. You both thirst not on the basis of some kind of social norm right the more difficult grace is this his knowledge of her current and historical relationships he already knows she doesn't know that yet at least not to give me a drink part he knew She had a man that wasn't her husband. He knew she had five husbands. He knew those things. He did not use that shame to attack her when she walked up to that well. His grace allowed, made room for, an opportunity to address that issue in a way that she would hear him. He just said, give me a drink, knowing who she was and what situation she lived in. This woman was living a misguided, right, as far as worship goes. Again, this is later. We didn't read this part of the account. She's like, hey, we worship on this mountain. right?" She's living a misguided and shameful life with regard To men. Misguided in worship. Shameful in her relationships. Either she or the men in her life haven't been honorable enough to follow God's pattern for marriage. We don't know which is which. She could be the victim. She could be the perpetrator. It really doesn't matter. We're not told. Right? Now she's living with a man outside of marriage. At some point, these things, right at least whether you are the, the, the guilty party and she is guilty in, in one sense whether or not she's the perpetrator of all these ended relationships we don't know but she is guilty by constantly pursuing it knowing that that's not the pattern and at some point however this affects how you view yourself and it could be that this is just what she thinks she's worth like, this is who I am Any man who'll take me in any situation, that's who I am. We don't know, right? But after going through so many relationships like that, how do you see yourself differently? Um, Maybe she just thinks she's the kind of person who won't ever be valued because of who she is. She's a Samaritan, constantly told that you're not worth talking to a Jew. And she's a woman, right, by society as a whole, constantly told, well, there's nothing good that can come like out of your mind or your mouth or anything you do, you're just sort of a being. And she seems to be living that way, that life. Like, I'm just a being and I'll do whatever I have to do to get by, right? Even if it means living with a man outside of marriage. have you ever been caught up now let's think about ourselves right? have you ever been so caught up in sin that it affected your sense of self worth like you're like why doesn't anyone else around me struggle with this no one else I know struggles with this but I do I'm not as good as they are if I was I'd be over this how many years have I been a Christian and I'm still dealing with this? Persistent sin has that effect. It is one of Satan's most powerful devices. If he can tempt us into a persistent sin, then rather than looking at that sin and saying, well, this is... Satan's temptation of me and I'm giving in to the flesh we start actually seeing it as our value this is who I am and I'm just not a good person or I'm just not going to be able to be a Christian I can't live that way this is who you are, you're just lower than others why even strive to be better you're just a lower person don't even try If you've ever faced that, Jesus did not show up and beat you down with those failures. He didn't accept them, He didn't say that's okay. But He did not beat you down with them. He showed you the truth that overcomes those failures. So that's, think about yourself and Jesus, right? But then now slip it around. Again, what do you do for others in this woman's condition? Do you know people in persistent sin? Whether or not it affects their self-worth, or I would contend it always does, but we can just leave that off the table. Do you know others in persistent sin? Do you use God's grace to make room for their shame? And again, I want to say that because Jesus could have said, Don't come near me, you dirty, shameful person. Don't converse with me. Don't draw water here until I'm gone. He didn't do that. Instead, he let this woman, living in a sinful relationship, come up and draw water. And then he says, Could you give me a drink? He actually built a relationship with her in a couple of sentences that was at least substantial enough to have real conversation. Now, he knew these things about this woman miraculously, but we know things about people because they're in our lives. Do you know people who live like this woman? Do you know a woman who's had five husbands and is now living with a man that's not her husband? Or a man living in a similar situation? Right? Or any kind of persistent sin? Is this how you treat them? Or do you just say, you know what, I've known about this for too long, and I'm fed up with it, and I'm just going to unload. How long do you think Jesus knew about it? We don't know that, but how long do you think the Father in heaven knew about it? You think he doesn't know he knew from husband one and he's been putting up with this woman letting her live her life in all of this sin without snuffing her out but we want to snuff people out man i do i don't want to speak for you i'm not the gracious person <laughs> i'll just give you a hint which end of the spectrum my personality is is not the grace end of the spectrum. Jesus shows grace here by allowing room for this woman to come in with all this baggage and say, "We're we're peers in the sense that I'm human and you're human. I have appetites like thirst. So do you. And all this baggage." not right. He didn't withhold truth from her. He he never withholds truth. He doesn't wield it and cut off her head. Right? So do you let people know, hey, you know what? I have fleshly appetites as well. I'm a human being. The things that are tempting you I have other things, or maybe it's the same thing. Who knows? I have other things that tempt me. This time of year, I am tempted to be a glutton. And that is like, real. I mean, I have, every time I walk away from the table, it's not because I'm full. I'll tell you that right now. It's because I say, I don't need that fifth piece of chicken. No, it's not that bad, okay. But I'm just saying, right? That's a fleshly appetite that we take and we twist. Because it tastes good, and so we twist it and say, well, I'm not just going to feed my hunger. I'm going to feed my senses. That's the word sensual. It's not just a sexual thing. It's sense. Sense Sensual. Looks good, hears good, smells good, tastes good, feels good. I'm going to serve that. But do we let people know that we have appetites, right, that appeal to our senses? Or do we just say, yeah, You're lower than me because I've got that under control. Jesus didn't do that. As I said earlier, we are responsible for presenting and representing Jesus in all his glory with both grace and truth. All right, so let's conclude. You've probably heard the phrase, cheap grace. Um... I like the way Jimmy put it in his lesson he said it refers to being gracious to people without challenging them to appreciate the grace it's like being patient with someone without them ever knowing ever knowing ever right that they require patience because all you're doing is showing them grace and you're not giving them any truth right it's easier just to be gracious and avoid the tension I'll just continue to be gracious never really present that truth the other side of the spectrum instead of cheap grace is harsh truth this is akin to as I said earlier bludgeoning someone with a club right takes the form of pointing out sins and failures and weaknesses at every opportunity without the effort or the work required to build a relationship in which that kind of criticism can be accepted Now, people may never accept. I'm not saying your presentation of truth always depends on the person. But I'm just saying, have you made an effort like Jesus made to have a relationship that someone will hear you in? That person may reject that relationship. That doesn't mean you withhold truth. But you have to understand that truth is probably almost certainly not going to be accepted. But you present it anyway. Twenty years later, that seed may sprout. But we have to make that effort. We cannot just live a life of harsh truth. It's easier to run our mouths spouting truth without the effort of being gracious. If we wear the name of Christian and we live like either of these, we're lying to the world about who Jesus is. If we tell people we're Christians and we live like either one of these, We're living out a lie to the world. Not a lie about who we are. That's who we are. A lie about who Jesus is. The beautiful part about repenting of these things is the effect it will have on those other people. Imagine going to someone that you've shown grace to for a long time and you tell them, I have something really difficult to say and I need you to hear this because you've never said that before. You've always just been gracious. If you've been withholding from them in preference for cheap grace, you're going to shock them. They're going to be like, I've never heard you say this. Something's coming. Imagine you've been withholding grace from someone who you've been bludgeoning with truth constantly, right? And you haven't shown grace. grace. Imagine if you went to them and you said, I have sinned, against you and God by withholding from you the grace he's shown to me that person's never seen grace from you imagine that's why I say in this case repentance on your part on my part can be powerful in showing people who Jesus is grace and truth don't just change lives as they do but they're actually the key to the new creation right as James mentioned John 1 creation made in the image of Jesus so that's my challenge for myself for you is don't just try to make sure you're presenting one side of Jesus but actually go to the extraordinary effort, and it is an effort to present 100% grace and 100% truth at the same time. Not because that's the, an effective evangelism technique. It's not what we're talking about. It's because that's who Jesus is, and if we're disciples of him, right, we do the same thing. Thank you for your attention. I know it's really warm in here. I'm, I'm burning up but I hope these, these thoughts are something that we can focus on as we leave here and in the coming, for me, days and months. Um, Dave is going to sing a song now um, that he's selected. It's, again, we, we call these invitation songs and it's, it's an opportunity while we're singing for you to come and talk to one of us, anybody, someone next to you, and say, I need help with something. These are the people Um, who can sit down with the Word and find that help. So let's stand and sing at this time.